0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What
1: up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the No Sabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between—
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I'm Holly Fry. If any of you—I know some of you do—but maybe you hang out on our Facebook page, (laughs) you've probably seen the guy complaining that our episode on Calamity Jane is inaccurate that episode that doesn't exist. We don't have a Calamity Jane episode. <laughs> so we're fixing that today. Uh We're pretty sure that guy on Facebook is actually complaining about a video that we shared that neither of us is in that doesn't say stuff he missed in history class on it. Uh, but, you know, he's basically the reason why we're doing a Calamity Jane episode today. Also because she's fascinating. Also because she is fascinating. And the other thing is the the guy who gave us a one-star iTunes review for talking about too many women, when at that point less than a quarter of the women in... Or less than a quarter of the most recent episodes were about women. That guy gets partial credit for our recent uptick in women because <laughs> less than 20% of women is the opposite of too many women. So we're, we're,
4: we're fixing that balance a little bit right now. It, apparently it's too many for him. Yeah. But it's not a good representation of humankind or history.
0: No, my favorite response in that whole discussion was was when I pointed out that only five of the last 20 episodes had been about women, and one of the women was a saponified corpse. Right. <laughs> uh, and somebody responded and said, I think saponified corpses are overrepresented in
4: the podcast. <laughs> it was fantastic. Anyway, Calamity Jane. Yeah. So we're going to talk about her. Uh, Calamity Jane's grandparents were farmers who lived in Ohio, not far from the border with West Virginia. In the 1850s, her grandfather, James Canary, started selling off the family's land in preparation for a move west. First, he and several of his children and their families moved to Polk County, Iowa. One of these children was his son, Robert, who married Charlotte Burge in
0: Iowa on June 14, 1855. He was 30 at that time, and she was 15. About a year later, on May 1st, 1856, they had a daughter named Martha Jane Canary, who would later grow up to be Calamity Jane. Uh, Calamity Jane would eventually have at least three siblings, possibly others who didn't survive childhood. But we only have a lot of information about really two of them who we'll talk about in a bit.
4: Just before the future Calamity Jane was born, James Canary resettled the family a second time, this time to Mercer County, Missouri. He bought a bunch of land for less than he sold the Iowa land for, and then he turned around and sold it to his children for a steep discount. Once again, most of the extended Canary family lived near to one another. Calamity's parents really made, and we are going to call her Calamity this whole episode
0: because that's fun to say. Calamity's parents really made an impression on the residents of Mercer County. Charlotte Canary in particular was remembered for being the cigar-smoking, foul-mouthed woman who was known to get drunk in public and wear really flamboyant clothing. Robert, on the other hand, was remembered for being kind of lazy, and people looked down on him for not being able to, quote, control his wife. Plus, he allowed her to browbeat him for not being a very good husband or provider. So they made an impression.
4: In 1862, James Canary, who had apparently been living with Robert, Charlotte, and their children since the death of his wife sometime before, also died. Shortly thereafter, when Calamity was six or seven, Robert sold the farm and the family moved again, this time away from the rest of the Canaries. And it's a little unclear as to why, although two prevailing theories are the Civil War and the need to dodge some issues with the late James Canary's estate.
0: Yeah, it seems like Robert pretty much withheld something from James Canary's estate that he needed to hand back over to then be divided up among his heirs, uh, and instead he moved away. From Ohio, the family went west, and they eventually wound up in Blackfoot City, Montana, in December of 1864. That winter was a really hard one, and a lot of settlements in Montana were straining under a huge influx of people who had moved west basically all at once. A story in the Montana Post, which came out on December 31st of that year, talked about three children who were begging for aid from one of the commissioners of Madison County, Montana. The article described their mother as, quote, a woman of the lowest grade and their father as a gambler. The children in this story gave their last name as Canary. And most historians believe that this uh, news article was
4: about Calamity Jane's family. It's not exactly clear what led the family to fall in these hard times, but things only got worse from there. Charlotte died in 1866. Then, Robert reportedly took the children south, having heard that the Mormons would take in and care for needy children. Unfortunately, he also died in 1867, somewhere near Salt Lake City. Calamity at this point was
0: about 11, and as the oldest, she needed to take care of her surviving younger siblings, According to her nephew, she arranged homes for her sister Lena and her brother Elijah, who was known as Lige. Lena later went on to marry a farmer, and she had seven children that then died in a farming accident in 1888. Lige became an itinerant farmhand, including at some points in places where Calamity also lived, and he did spend some time in prison.
4: Sometime between the death of her father and the summer of 1869, Calamity Jane made her way to Piedmont, Wyoming, which we know from census records, on which she listed her age as 15, not 13. From there, the age she told people is consistently different from her age the first time her parents reported her on the census. She consistently told people she was older than
0: she actually was, according to census records. Piedmont was one of the many towns that had sprung up along the Transcontinental Railroad as it was being built. It had about a hundred residents at this point, and most of them were male laborers. By the time of the 1869 census, most of its buildings had recently been upgraded from tents to shacks.
4: In Piedmont, Calamity lived and worked at a boarding house, and she sometimes earned money as sort of an in-house babysitter. However, Calamity Jane bucked expectations for what a 15-year-old girl should be like. She flirted, and she danced with soldiers who came through the area. She cross-dressed in soldiers' clothing. Her behavior was considered to be wild, so much so that she was fired from the boarding house, and Emma Alton, its owner, insisted later that she'd had nothing at all to do with Calamity Jane, in spite of many witness reports to the contrary.
0: We're not sure exactly how long Calamity Jane stayed in Piedmont or exactly where she went when she left. It's not really in the newspapers or census reports in 1870, and various other accounts, uh, like interviews people gave later, contradict one another. It's really the early 1870s before there were reliable reports on her whereabouts. We have kind of a general sense that she traveled from one Wyoming boomtown to another, finding work where she could, doing anything from odd jobs to almost certainly prostitution. There's a brief gap here in what we know about Calamity Jane's story, so we're going to take a brief pause and have a word from one of the sponsors who helps keep our show going.
1: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station
3: It's always the feeling
2: when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trepani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money?
2: You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something
1: that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world?
5: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Calamity Jane, still known as Martha Jane Canary, traveled around various Wyoming frontier settlements in the late 1860s and early 1870s. She made a number of short stays in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and traveled back and forth between there and the nearby forts of Laramie and Russell,
4: working as both an entertainer and a prostitute. The first written account that we have of Calamity Jane that's actually substantiated by multiple sources, and is also when she became known as Calamity is from her time in the Black Hills in Dakota Territory. And to talk about that part of her life, we're going to need to set the stage a little bit.
0: The Black Hills of South Dakota had been set aside as part of a reservation for the Sioux Nation and the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. According to the terms of this treaty, fighting between the U.S. Army and the Sioux Nation was going to end, and the Sioux would have exclusive rights to the Black Hills, which were and are sacred to the Sioux.
4: However, in 1874, in defiance of the treaty's terms, General George Custer led an expedition through the Black Hills to look for gold and found it. Word spread, leading to a gold rush, and the miners and prospectors who flooded the area demanded that the U.S. Army protect them from the native population, even though they were all there illegally. As
0: the government started to waffle on upholding the terms of the treaty and instead protecting non-Native miners and prospectors from the Native Americans, the Office of Indian Affairs and the Department of War sponsored the Newton-Jenny Expedition into the Black Hills. This 1875 expedition was meant to survey the area and to evaluate the reports of mineral deposits that were there. This expedition departed on May 25, 1875, and Calamity Jane tagged along.
4: This is where real written documentation of Calamity Jane's life, rather than just things gleaned mostly from census records and interviews conducted much later, really gets started. Three different writers chronicling the expedition not only talked about Calamity Jane, but also called her by that name. So it's clear that Martha became known as Calamity either before or very early in the process of this expedition. She became so consistently known as Calamity that it wasn't until later historians pieced her story together that people actually figured out that she had once been called Martha.
0: Calamity seems to have joined this expedition in disguise after asking both Colonel Dodge, who was commanding it, and the doctor, who was going to be in charge of medical services for the expedition, if she could come along. Both of them told her no. So she disguised herself as a soldier Unfortunately, this disguise is reportedly what got her discovered. She saluted an officer who returned her salute, and the soldiers who were standing around and knew what was up started laughing about it. When they were made to explain themselves, the officer was quite angry and threw her out of the expedition.
4: But at this point, they were more than 60 miles away from the fort. Calamity Jane was certainly resourceful. She was now 19 years old, and she'd been essentially living on her own since she was 11. But this wasn't something she could easily survive on her own. She was in understandably hostile territory.
0: The written accounts
4: of the expedition do
0: vary a little on exactly what Jane did at this point. Whether she kept sneaking back in dressed as a soldier and falling in with men who were sympathetic to her, or whether she rode along with the Teamsters instead of instead of with the soldiers, or some of both. Either way, the expedition doctor described her as, quote, crazy for adventure.
4: It's not entirely clear whether Calamity stayed with the expedition throughout its entirety. But, afterward, the U.S. ordered that all native peoples in the area in and around the Black Hills needed to move to a reservation or be considered hostiles. Many refused, and the army began sending troops to round people up and move them by force. General George Crook commanded one of the units being assigned this task, and on March 1st of 1876, He departed Fort Fetterman, which was about 80 miles northwest of Fort Laramie. His force included nearly 900 men and Calamity Jane. Calamity Jane's own account of this expedition is
0: highly, highly embellished. And in all likelihood, she came along as either a teamster or a prostitute or just a camp follower. However, this expedition went terribly The weather was awful the whole time, and they had an encounter with the Cheyenne that went so badly that Crook wound up filing charges against one of his officers once it was all over.
4: Reports place calamity all over the general area following the failed expedition, often driving teams of animals and dressed in clothing more associated with men. People described her as tough and brave, and she developed a reputation for being an excellent shot. In May of
0: 1876, Calamity, having given a false name in the matter, was indicted in Laramie County for stealing a bundle of clothing and other personal items. She was temporarily put in jail before being declared not guilty and freed. Reportedly, she celebrated her freedom by riding a horse all the way to Fort Laramie, which was 90 miles past her intended uh, destination of Fort Russell, drinking heavily the entire way. Which
4: might explain the... Whoopsie-daisy in where she landed. Right. (laughs) The next month, she joined up with General Crook again on another mission to try to round up Sioux resistance, this time falling in with them after their departure, dressed as a man and working as a teamster. When she was discovered, she was arrested. She was given woman's clothing to wear and kept guard until they were back in town. Her own version of this story is that she was a scout for General Crook, but that can't be substantiated. And after her death, Captain Jack Crawford, who was also part of the mission, flatly dismissed it.
1: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station
3: Listen to The Daily Show, ears edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This next phase of Calamity Jane's life is by far the most famous and notorious. In June of 1876, she met up with James Butler Hickok, also known as Wild Bill, and Charles Utter, known as Colorado Charlie. They were on their way from Cheyenne to Deadwood. They made a number of stops, including outside of Fort Laramie, where about 30 wagons and roughly
4: 100 people were waiting to join them. Calamity Jane joined as well, after the officer of the day at Fort Laramie asked them to please take her off his hands. She was being detained there, and she was quite drunk. Fortunately, Steve Utter, brother to Colorado Charlie, knew Calamity, and he said that he would take care of her. She spent
0: a lot of this journey drinking and entertaining the travelers with really tall tales about her exploits around the campfire. These were peppered with lots of profanity. They finally arrived in Deadwood around July 12th, and they paraded into town with Wild Bill, Colorado Charlie, Calamity, and the others closest to them. So their little clique, uh, all wearing new buckskin clothes just covered in fringe. Calamity had actually borrowed the money to buy hers because she didn't have any money of her own. A day later, the Black Hills Pioneer, which was one of the two newspapers that had been launched in Deadwood, proclaimed, Calamity
4: Jane has arrived. Like many of the other places Calamity had lived previously, Deadwood was a boomtown whose population was surging as the result of a gold rush. When Wild Bill's party arrived, it was still mostly a collection of tents with only a few solid buildings constructed at this point. It was also wild and virtually lawless. Saloons and theaters provided much of the town's entertainment, and Calamity found work as a hostess and dancer. She soon repaid the money that she had borrowed to purchase her buckskins. She
0: also, contrary to the pictures that are almost invariably used to represent her, often dressed in more typical feminine clothing. There are more than 20 photos of Calamity Jane that still exist, and she's wearing clothing more typical for a man in only six of them. But those six are the ones that are most widely used and most widely available. So they are almost always the ones that wind up in articles and on covers of books and things like that. Though they will also be on our website because I can only find one of her in a (laughs) dress.
4: Well, they are quite striking. Yeah, she she cuts a a dashing figure. She just you can feel attitude coming off her in those pictures. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Although Wild Bill and Calamity Jane are often presented in novels and movies as a couple, there's really nothing to substantiate that. Calamity herself never claimed that they were romantically involved, and most of the other accounts of Deadwood agreed that they weren't seen together very often. When Wild Bill was murdered on August 2nd of 1876, they had been in Deadwood for less than a month, and they'd known one another for only about six weeks. Calamity stayed in Deadwood for two or three years,
0: finding steady work in Deadwood's dance halls where she did lots of dancing and lots of drinking and really stood up for herself in an environment that could frankly be very dangerous for the women who were working there.
4: One of these places was the notorious Den of Iniquity, the Gem Variety Theater, managed by Al Sweringen, who we discussed in a previous two-parter. She worked as a dancer, a hostess, and a recruiter, traveling to other towns to bring prostitutes back to the gym.
0: I tried to find out more information about whether that recruitment was really on the up and up, and I could not.
4: Yeah, we talked about some of Al Swearingen's practices where he would go and, like, make promises of, like, no, you're going to be a dancer and a star, and then they would get back, and it was kind of like they had basically prostitution enslavement. Yeah, yeah. But we we didn't connect whether or not Jane was on those particular recruitment missions or. Right.
0: Things. I, I, I really wanted to <laughs> it's one of those things that I really wanted to resolve for my own peace of mind. And I could not, although she's most famous for rowdy body, tough behavior. Calamity Jane also worked as a nurse in Deadwood and some of the other places where she lived. She gained a reputation for having a good heart and for always being willing to help somebody who was sick or hurt. This included during a smallpox outbreak in 1878 when she worked at a pest house that had been set up to quarantine the sick. She looked after patients who were so sick that nobody else would go near them.
4: In the late 1870s, Calamity Jane became famous beyond just the area of the Black Hills. Local newspapers had been covering her exploits for quite some time, but people began writing biographies about her while she was still living, and she became a character in dozens of dime novels. One such series were the Deadwood Dick books, one of which is called Deadwood Dick on Deck or Calamity Jane, the heroine of Whoop Up.
0: I love that title. <laughs> uh, there are there are dozens is not an exaggeration. She is a character in dozens and dozens of cheap novels that came out around came out around this point, and so a lot of people became more familiar with her as this fictional sidekick, Wild West. Uh, like, quote, cowboys and Indians kind of character than the actual person.
4: Right. Her caricature kind of superseded the reality of her life.
0: Yeah. She left Deadwood in the early 1880s, and she continued to travel and explore, following the railroad to different parts of the frontier and moving from one gold strike or other mineral rush to another. And in 1884, she started performing with Wild West shows.
4: She had at least one child, a daughter named Jessie, uh, and was later married to Jessie's likely father, Bill Steers, in 1885. It is possible that she had other children, and she also described other men as her husband. But the marriage to Bill Steers is really the only one that's documented.
0: Her life seems to have really gone downhill after the disappearance of her husband and the death of her sister, both of which happened in 1888. She continued on in the same pattern as before. She was still traveling and drinking and finding work where she could, but it all became just a whole lot darker and less apparently fun. she uh, It's not really clear where her daughter was during a lot of this time, and her excessive drinking was really starting to take a, a toll on her health and just her ability to take care of herself.
4: Following the Panic of 1893, Calamity Jane apparently helped guard an engine that miners were trying to commandeer so they could join the Coxies Army protest march to Washington, D.C. A picture of this is one of the surviving photos of her.
0: This was a protest march where uh, out-of-work laborers from all over the West and Midwest, like thousands of them, marched on Washington to to protest. In October of 1895, she briefly went back to Deadwood with her daughter, Ann Clinton Burke, who she was describing as her husband, The following year, she went on tour as a performer with a traveling museum. And it was for this tour uh, to kind of promote her and promote the tour that her autobiography was ghostwritten, which is why it is so heavily embellished and sometimes flatly fictional.
4: Once this tour was over, she kept traveling, trying to make a living through appearances and autographs, but her health really started to suffer as a result of a life of alcoholism.
0: For a little while, she traveled east and she appeared at the Pan American Exposition in New York in July and August of 1901. Afterwards, she joined the Cummins Indian Congress. This was another traveling show that was modeled after Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. But whereas Buffalo Bill's show was focused kind of on the, quote, cowboy end of things, uh, the Cummins Indian Congress was more focused on various Native American tribes. Calamity's role was kind of an Old West character.
4: Before long, she wanted to go West again. So she borrowed money from Buffalo Bill Cody, who she knew from briefly performing in his show, for her tickets. And she wound up in South Dakota, where she stayed through the winter of 1902. And then she resumed traveling in failing health, making her way back to the Black Hills and again to Deadwood. In July of
0: 1903, she became ill and she refused to see a doctor. When a friend finally called a doctor for her, she refused his care. She started to tell people that she was dying, and she did die on August 1st, 1903. She was buried next to Wild Bill Hickok. It's a little unclear whether that was what she asked for or whether people thought that would make a good tourist attraction. The name on the gravestone is Mrs. M. E. Burke Calamity Jane.
4: And if you're wondering what happened with the Black Hills... Fighting between the Army and the Sioux and their allies continued, including the Battle of Little Bighorn in June of 1876, which was the site of Custer's last stand. In 1877, the U.S. government reclaimed the Black Hills land previously set aside for the Sioux. This eventually made it to the Supreme Court in the United States versus Sioux Nation of Indians. In an 8-to-1 decision, the court upheld a previous Court of Claims decision that the Sioux were entitled to $17.1 million. Which the Sioux actually refused, wanting instead to have the Black Hills as they had been promised. Debate over this whole thing continues, with a United Nations Human Rights Investigator recommending the return of various Native American lands, including the Black Hills, in 2012.
0: It's kind of a I, I wanted to make sure to include that since we only included a portion of this Black Hills story, and it seemed like at the end of the episode was probably where it would fit the best. Makes sense to me. Do you have a bit of listener mail for us? I do. I'm going to start, though, with a very brief correction after I find my listener mail. (laughs) Uh, In our recent episode about the child migrant program in Great Britain, we misidentified Kevin Rudd as the premier of Australia when he was really the prime minister. I would like to thank The Guardian for having that 100% wrong in the article that I was using as a source, which is a source that I thought would know what it was talking about in terms of. Like, leaders of of countries, I don't know.
4: You know, everybody has a, a day when they use the wrong word. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and that's, I started clicking on things to be like, did they have it wrong everywhere? And no, literally the next sentence after the one that I was in the article that I use as a source links to another article on The Guardian where it's right. So clearly some people there know what's true. Uh, I have an email from Jess and... It answers a question that you and I had talked about in our episode on Dr. Virginia Apgar about why doctors were so focused on the mothers and not on the babies before Virginia Apgar made it clear to everybody that they needed to look at the babies.
4: (laughs) I'm waiting for you to say it because you love that phrase so much. look at the baby.
0: Jess says, hi, ladies. In your recent podcast on Virginia APGAR, you wonder about the focus on maternal health over infant health in early 20th century medicine. Edward Shorter talks about this historically shifting focus in his book, A History of Women's Bodies. He points to the significant danger of childbearing for mothers who are already past the treacherous years of childhood mortality and therefore likelier to survive generally as the reason for the maternal bias in early medicine. He also suggests, however, a shifting focus toward fetal outcome has been taking place recently, sometimes to the detriment of mothers. As with all women's medicine, the social attitudes of the time often combine with knowledge to form best practice, and it can be difficult to reckon the choices of others, even in the not-so-distant past. Thanks for all you do, and thanks for all the medical topics, the LGBTQ history, and the stuff relating to disabilities. Death, President Now is my all-time fave episode. Cheers, Jess. Thank you, Jess. Indeed. I had, we sort of thought probably things along those lines were, were why there was such a focus on the on the mothers. I did not really think about the progressive shift to the outcome for babies that I think we have definitely seen, even in our lifetimes. Yeah. More and more focus on, uh, on baby's health and even fetal health rather than mother's health. Yes. Yes. So, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Myst History and on Twitter at Myst History. Our Tumblr is Myst in and on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Myst in History. We have a Spreadshirt store at Myst where you can get t-shirts and iPhone cases and stuff like that if you would like to learn more about what we have talked about today come to our parent company's website. That's HowStuffWorks.com. Put the words Calamity Jane in the search bar. You will find two different things that are very contrary to one another. One is 10 most famous nurses in history. The other is 12 renowned women of the Wild West. You can do that at HowStuffWorks.com or you can come to MistInHistory.com, which is our website. You will find show notes, which is where we correct things like our thing about Kevin Rudd, ideally, usually like the day the episode came out. Uh, also an archive of all the episodes we've ever done. Lots of cool stuff. So you can do all that and a lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MistedHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse